0: Whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships, I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Ageless. So today we have Cheyenne from Sundance Harvest, which is an urban farm in Toronto. And we are so thankful to have Cheyenne on today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I guess I just wanted to start off by saying that this might feel like a bit of a basic conversation for you because we really don't know... That much about agriculture or urban farming. But I guess just to start off simply, maybe you could just tell us about you and how you learned about urban agriculture.
2: Yeah, so the way I started Sundance Harvest, and Sundance Harvest is a year-round urban farm in Toronto and also an education hub, is that when I was 18 years old and I was traveling a bit, I actually went to Cuba, a small town called Vinales, which is a tobacco region in Cuba. And I learned to farm on my friend's uh, piece of land there. And it was really fun. I managed about one acre by myself. There were some chicken, there was oxen, there were some cool animals hanging out. And I really got to know a lot about organic farming because we mainly used hand tools and compost. So that's really where the basic and the roots of my education related to farming came from and then everything else was fairly self-taught because I feel like with growing food it's a process that you learn season after season so that's a bit about how I got started with agriculture
1: well I think mentorship is such a big part of all of this And I'm wondering if there are resources for people who might not see themselves represented as much within agricultural jobs, let's say. And I know you mentioned Rise Up and Root Farm was a big inspiration to you in starting Sundance Harvest. What sort of resources are available for youth? Wanting to
2: learn more about food
1: justice and agriculture. Yeah.
2: So for Sundance Harvest, I do grow vegetables year-round. I have a CSA and a farmer's market. But I wanted to do more than just provide a farm. So I have um, two streams of education I have with Sundance Harvest. One is a paid farm school that a lot of allies and people interested in food and food justice take, and the second one is a free um, urban farming weekly course uh, that's called Growing in the Margins. And Growing in the Margins is a play on the actual uh, demographic because the people who participate in Growing in the Margins are youth who are marginalized. So. Black, youth, Indigenous, people of color, queer, trans, two-spirit, and folks who are disabled, they are the largest demographic of Growing in the Margins. And really what Growing in the Margins does is it provides free education related to farming and Urban farming itself, too, provides actual skills that people can put on their resume and actually get employment with urban agriculture. So that's a bit about growing in the margins. Um, And I find that with learning about food growing and food, it's very important that people, especially youth, have an accessible place to access those uh, education because it's really hard in the city to learn about farming. Unless you go out into Guelph or some rural part of Ontario, you're not going to really find a lot of farmers or people with the skills to teach you. And a lot of the youth who are marginalized in the city don't have access to maybe a vehicle or time to take off work. And having a local source to learn about food growing in the city, I find has really helped a lot of folks.
0: And do you, like, are are, are some of your... um students have they gone on to build their own farms and and share their knowledge then with other younger people yeah so
2: um, a, lot of, a lot of the youth within growing the margins now have full-time jobs uh, for example my friend uh who was a part of the program last year he's now working at food share which is a local non-profit in Toronto. Devoted to food justice, and they have lots of little urban farms across uh, the city. Uh, my other friend, she's working within a social enterprise that does work around urban farming in the city. So a lot of the youth related to urban uh, sort of growing in the margins now have employment in agriculture because they learn the skills with me in the program.
0: And is it is it hard to um, find these these places that in urban? cities that you can farm? Like, how do, how would you, um, you know, like, how how do you find these plots of land, whether it's um, a rooftop, a little, little patch somewhere? Like, where do, where do you, how do you find those?
2: Yeah, so it's very hard to find land in the city, as I feel like this is all across the board related to any city. Um, A few of the ways that people can grow food where I'm in, in Toronto, Ontario, is one, a community garden. But the issue with community gardens is there's a long wait list that is sometimes two years for people to get a tiny two by two plot, and you actually can't sell the produce. So a lot of the people who are growing food, who would like to have a career in agriculture, or maybe just some extra pocket change, don't have that ability. The other way you could grow food is through rooftop farming, which is super trendy and cool and a really great way to make use of space on a rooftop that otherwise would just take up heat and be a heat sink. Um, however, with rooftop farming, there's not a lot of them in Toronto because there's a lot of red tape because you do need an engineer to make sure that the rooftop won't collapse with all the soil and it could take this much load and the irrigation is okay and it won't deteriorate the roof. So there's a lot of extra steps related to rooftop farming to make sure that it's safe for everyone involved and the people who are in the building, too. Um, So that's another option. But then the more, more common option is just simply growing in the earth. So finding spaces to grow food, for me, was really hard. Um, I leased a greenhouse, which was a really great opportunity that I'm very grateful to still have. But then I also, for growing in the margins, I have individual plots around Toronto that are usually behind uh, places of worship, like churches, synagogues, etc., that I can grow food in with youth. And it's a non-for-profit space. So I find the easiest way that I could find land was to actually not go the route of working with the city because I couldn't actually really do a lot on a small two by two spot, instead, I just decided to team up with people in my local community who had extra space and who really who were interested in food justice and also education around food growing
0: i I love the idea well um Kit and her sister went to their grade school was public school, and they had um a roof garden where kids you know can learn to nurture and and grow stuff. And it's, it's a cool idea that the public school system is implementing things like that. Yeah. You know?
1: I think, yeah. I mean, there's many, I, there's a lot of public schools that have
0: yeah. gardens in Garden. New
1: York. Um, my question is why is it important to focus on marginalized youth and how does the urban grow urban agriculture movement fit into the movement against systemic racism?
2: Yeah. So when we're thinking about, for example, um, and where I am in Canada, um, University of Toronto, they came out with a study and the department is called proof. If you feel like like, looking it up, it's um, it was really the study was related to food insecurity across Canada. And they found that black and indigenous people were at most risk of food insecurity. And food insecurity is not caused by a lack of food, but a lack of income. So that's directly correlated to these two groups related relating to food insecurity themselves. So I find that because these two groups of high populations in the city and also outside on the outskirts of uh, Toronto too, that... Re- Doing urban agriculture in the city center is one of the ways to alleviate food insecurity because it can also give people the opportunity to create income. And a lot of times urban farming is done as a way to gentrify neighborhoods, but it can also be use, used as a vehicle for change. It can be used in a way to allow people in their local neighborhoods to make extra income, to be able to maybe pay for that pass that they need to get to work with, right? And I find that urban agriculture can really do uh, both. And it's a really way good way to catalyze change. So I would say related to systemic racism and how urban farming can help that is that if we establish more urban farms within these neighborhoods that are food insecure, that are marginalized, that do face the lasting effects of colonialism and systemic racism, if you have urban farms in those neighborhoods, and if they're run by community, then the community gets to have their own food sovereignty. They get to control where their food is grown how it's grown. They get to save seeds. They get to actually share that knowledge through and pass it down through generations the elders can teach the kids. And the community gets to band around that space. And an example I can actually give from within my city is a community farm called Black Creek Community Farm. It's located in the Jane and Finch neighborhood, a very racialized neighborhood. And it's um, a really great farm because it directly feeds that community there. It's for community, by community. So I would say that it's very important that we have urban farms directly where these people are. And I feel like that helps a lot. All
1: of your work is seriously so amazing. Well, up until recently, I thought that food insecurity meant complete lack of food. And like you said before, food insecurity is really about the economics around purchasing food. So maybe you could give us a little bit of a crash course on the vocabulary around these things so that we can speak about them with our communities and talk to our friends and really advocate for these issues and food justice in a more productive way.
2: Yeah, so food insecurity is – so let's think about food insecurity and food sovereignty. Think about food insecurity um, as maybe level one. That's like the first level. And then I would say food justice is level two. And then food sovereignty is level three. Level three is really where we want to get. Food insecurity basically means that a person does not have access to food. That can be unhealthy food, like craft dinner, or it can be healthy food, like some apples. The second level, which is food justice... People realize that food insecurity is caused by systemic oppression, whether that be income oppression, race oppression, colonial impacts, that these things are actually lasting and it's not an individual's fault. The third level is food sovereignty. So those who are directly marginalized in level one and level two control the system of food, control the seed, control the hunting grounds where they can fish and they can catch caribou and they have the actual means to take care of their community. So level three is where we want to be. And that's food so- food sovereignty. So that that's a bit about to describe it. Mm, okay, that's that's a good yeah, map. That's
0: really helpful. I yes. just think um, that farming is something that sh- that feels very uh, should should come naturally to people because I think it is like something nurturing, and you want to grow. And I think I know you started way uh, before the pandemic, but I do think that this, during this time when, you know, maybe mankind might be, um, you know, suffering, you feel like mother nature can still flourish. And that's such a rewarding, uh, feeling that, you know, you can plant something. So I planted, um, seeds, um, like in April, I guess it was and i i they're just coming up now and um i was telling my mom and my mom was like oh that's a victory garden you know that's what people did during the war but
2: mm-hmm. I,
0: do, do you know that term victory garden
2: yeah yeah so the victory gardens is is and was and still is in some places of the world today a very popular thing um during world war one and also world war two um governments told folks and they actually made posters and flyers and sent out radio broadcastings to actually grow their own gardens because this would take the pressure off of grocery stores and also other farmers as well in the areas because back then they didn't really have a giant industrialized system as we do today right and we're thinking about Farmers with hectares and hectares of land growing canola and soy and corn. Um, But back then, when we are thinking about small agriculture, especially in the 1920s and 30s. um, Those systems couldn't really uphold um, all that need for food, because especially during the pandemic, you can probably imagine a month ago or maybe two months ago, the grocery store shelves were empty. So you can only imagine back in the 20s and 30s, people panicking panic buying. So really having a victory garden helped a lot in terms of alleviating some of the pressure the grocery stores and the local farmers felt. And it really helped encourage people to maybe take more ownership over their food and food sovereignty itself, because everyone can be related to food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is basically being able to uh, control and choose how you grow your food, when you grow food, and how you grow food, especially related to seed as well. So victory gardens are a really cool thing. Um, not super cool because they're connected to war in yeah. um, a colonial war, but besides that, it's a really nice thought to get a community together and let everyone know that they have a stake in the food system. Mm-hmm.
0: So if you if you were plant if you're just starting and you're going to plant your first crop, what are can you tell us what the easiest things are to start with?
2: Yeah, so I have three crops I can recommend. The first one would be radish. So any type of radish, French breakfast, cherry bell. There's lots of different fun colors. Um, Radish is super easy because it can actually take only 25 to 30 days, 25 days if it's hot outside and you can throw it in a salad, you can roast them. It's really great to have. The second crop would be lettuce, so head lettuce or baby leaf lettuce. Uh, Baby leaf lettuce will always be a bit easier, and it takes only about 30 days-ish. You can grow spicy lettuce or mild lettuce. Really, if you find um, any type of blend on a seed website, you can kind of just choose which one you like. Um, And then the last one is beans or peas. So beans or peas are really great for protein. They're one of the few plant proteins we know out there. And you can preserve them, you can save them, and they're super easy to grow. You can grow them as a bush bean, so without staking or trellising, which are a bit easier, or as a pole bean, uh, which actually climbs. So it can be a very interesting feature in your balcony garden or your backyard garden. Well, one question, I
1: guess, thinking about like – social justice movements and environmental justice movements. I think it's kind of, for a lot of people, the environmental justice movement and, like, the climate change movement is separate from racial justice movement and food justice movement. So I guess my question to you is, like, what's the thread there and how are all of these things connected?
2: Yeah, so I would say food justice and food and land justice are such large encompassing movements um, and they're related to the environment in a few ways. So one of the ways they're related is climate change. So climate change is affecting how farmers get to grow food. It's also affecting the type of crops I can even grow now too. And it's causing wildfires and floods and droughts and all these different um, natural um, issues and natural weather patterns that are existing in a more heightened way. So Climate justice, environmental justice is tied to food justice because climate change is really changing the way and how much food that farmers can grow for communities. Another way that environmental justice is tied to food and land justice is when we're thinking about indigenous rights and sovereignty, um, environmental justice ties in, whether that be, is the water safe for drinking? Or is there a boil water advisory? In many places in Canada, the government of Canada does not do enough or at all, really anything for Indigenous populations. So there's boiling water advisories that have been going on for years in parts of Ontario. And there's also, is there an oil spill in this water? Is the salmon not safe to catch? So that's environmental justice and that ties into food because the local populations, can they access safe water? Can they access safe fish to eat? Oftentimes, no, especially where I'm in in Ontario. Um, Another way that environmental justice is tied to food uh, could simply be um, with the um, idea of GMOs and GMO seeds and seed sovereignty. That's tied to the environment, right? Also, what farmers are spraying on their crops, so pesticides that can kill bees. And bees are very important for our environment, even beyond just eating um, almonds and chocolate and tomatoes, these are very important for other crops such as perennial flowers that we need and that hummingbirds eat from and forage from and things like that too. So there's a few ties in there. And I would say that really with the environmental justice, a lot you'll find that a lot of the different justices are all tied together, especially with food, because everyone needs food. Food is a thing that can be very political and often is political of who gets food, where do they get that food, and what food is taken from them. And that could be simply, like I said earlier, they can't access drinking water or or save fish to eat, or even their seed sovereignty is compromised because they are not allowed to save their seed because that seed is patented. patented. Or they, they can't really find their heritage corn varieties because that seed was washed away with colonization so there's a bunch of different ways that environmental justice is tied to food and land
1: well i guess just to be super transparent our audience for this podcast is primarily white and it's obviously hosted by two white women so i think asking questions around what white allyship looks like and Continuing to reimagine that work is super important to us. So I guess in your case, what does white allyship look like in urban farming and agricultural justice?
2: Yeah, so... White allyship in the food justice movement looks like, look, looks like redistributing resources. So resources could be a bunch of different things, and I'll get into a few of them. So the first thing I would say is land back. So giving land back to the local Indigenous nation. That's the most important thing, in my opinion. That's something that I'll be doing when I'm actually buying rural land. I'm going to be giving um, a large chunk of it, if not most of it, back to the local Indigenous nation that's neighboring to me. That's always been a plan of mine to do. Um, So that's one of the things. Another thing is land resources within the city. As I've spoken about earlier, finding land in the city could be a bit hard, right? So um, I would say that if you have a backyard or even a space, or maybe you have a coffee shop that has a large um, piece of grass next to it, contact your local urban farm or community group, especially one that's run by folks who are marginalized or youth or maybe a nonprofit and see if they can use the space, because space and land is the resource. Another way is if, let's say, you're a food influencer or a blogger or you're tied to food in any way, really bring up the issues and social justice and food justice related causes to food, right? Mention some local urban farms that are doing great work, support them, um, raise awareness of migrant workers' rights, and really share articles with your networks. So that's another way. And also, probably one of the easiest ways, and I'll end this off with the last one, is supporting your local farmers. It's very important to support local farmers because that's one of the ways that we can really stay in business. If no one bought my produce, Sundance Harvest wouldn't exist. And that's a very sad reality. But I make a living from farming. So supporting your local farms, especially those that actually use um, ethical labor that pay people a living wage. And you can probably find that out fairly easy by maybe sending an email or just seeing their Instagram feed I try to pay a living wage. I never pay minimum wage, always above that, even if they're entry level, um, because I just feel like that's fair. Um, and I advertise that. I say it very open and honestly on all my job postings that this is what I want to do. So supporting farms that have ethics in mind, that are small and local, and that are close to where you're living is very important. Because the more you support that farm, the more youth that may actually be working at that farm will have their own jobs, Right. So if that farm can actually hire 10 youth because they're getting more and more income, that means those 10 youth may potentially start their own farm, which is really great. And then you'll have more and more and more local agriculture. So that's a really easy example that I could give really to any folks about how to really use that allyship.
0: Well, I think you're so inspiring. And I I feel like you're going to really create a whole movement. I mean, take over the world. Take over the world. <laughs> no, it's true, it's really true. I think it's you're you're it's so inspiring and you make it seem fun and easy and and important and important work to do. Um so if you if you could what what's your dream for Sundance yeah, Harvest? So
2: I'm actually starting my dream and I feel like I'm an Aries and I kind of like go for what I want. I'm very stubborn. So no. I really wanted to start my own farm. And I already started Sundance Harvest, so I wanted a rural farm. Because I want both. I want urban and rural. I feel like one's not enough for me. <laughs> um, but so I'm starting a rural farm in Ontario, 2021. I'm actually just looking at land right now, which is really exciting. Um, and with this rural farm, I want to actually provide opportunities for youth within Growing in the Margins to stay on my farm, probably start a free summer camp and allow youth to get Full immersion in the farming experience. And I also want to be able to start having ethical um, production of chicken and eggs and you know free-range eggs and maybe have a few llamas and alpaca for sustainable fashion and really getting more into producing clothing in that way. I feel like that's really interesting. And I also want to bring back some heritage grain varieties. So overall, I want a rural farm because I think it would really be cool if I can do a closed loop agriculture because right now I grow produce. That's great. But I can't keep chickens and I can't really keep bees. So there's not really a way for me to kind of close the loop as in the chickens eat my food scraps. I use their manure to fertilize the crops and it's a circle right now. My circle is kind of open. So I really wanted urban a uh, rural farm to actually close that loop and try to have a fully sustainable food production source and then be able to serve more folks in Toronto with my CSA boxes and also at the farmer's markets.
0: Is there a way that like, would you ever add on You know, because, I mean, I love the idea of that company Misfits that takes all these odd, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the produce that nobody else wants and, you know, we get that. And I just think that's such a great way to, um, you know, uh, Just, uh, you, you to use everything that you can. And so I'm just thinking, like, is, would you ever consider any sort of, um, like preserving, you know, like canning or, um, you know what yeah, I mean? Like I, I would is, totally is,
2: think about that. Um, when I have like the resources to have like a k- kitchen, for example, because I would like um, a yeah. commercial kitchen, I would totally do that. Right now, what I have in terms of kind of making things more sustainable is I have a worm farm, so a worm composter. And all my extra lettuce that I, after I harvest, like some leaves are yellow, not that nice. I throw it there and the worms eat it and they give me compost. So that's one of the ways that I try to make things as sustainable as I can. Um, However, it's a small little speck in the bucket. Um, I also, I'm going to be starting, Um, selling teas. For example, I grow lemon balm and mint. Um, So I find that whatever I don't sell, I actually dry and then I turn that into tea and then I sell that. So that's kind of two of the ways that I make things more sustainable for Sundance so I don't have to throw out produce.
0: That's amazing. Wait, so did you learn that technique when you were in Cuba with the... with the tobacco? Yeah. Is it similar? Yeah, very
2: similar. Like I, I would air cure tobacco because you can cure tobacco in a few ways. It's kind of similar with like fish. I was like smoking fish. Um, so I air cured, or cured everything. So it's a very similar way. I use the same cure that I've used for tobacco. I made one for Toronto, my, my farm here. Um, and it's good. It's pretty simple. I feel like my herbs dry in like two days, three days.
0: Wow. Yeah. That oh, so that's cool. so it's. It's really exciting. I think everything you're doing is so, it's so exciting and I can't wait to see more and we love your films, your little videos and they're so informative and inspiring and we can't thank you enough for doing this today.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, could you just tell everyone where they could find you and follow along on your journey?
2: Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at, at Sundance Harvest, or you can find me on my website at sundanceharvestfarm.com.
1: All right. So I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening.